Good morning. You can, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them. Open to Psalm chapter 10. All right, Psalm 10 is where we'll be today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and need one, uh, if you don't be afraid, put your hand up and somebody would be happy to bring you one. Um, also, for the record, I, I did not choose Lupe for announcements just for that reason. It just kind of worked out that way. And uh, so, yeah. Also, on the announcements, it's, if you see those guys who give announcements, Lupe, uh, Troy, Brad, Mike, just tell them you appreciate what they do and just thank them. Tell them they do a good job. It's kind of a nerve-wracking thing to stand up here, especially if you're not used to it. Uh, and so just tell them, hey, you know, great job. We love seeing you guys up there. Uh, so, Lupe, great job. Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, so I had my sermon for this week nearly finished and ready to go. Uh, but as, as the week went on, I began to, to talk to different people and began to pay attention to the news more. And I began to actually consider what happened in Las Vegas last Sunday. And after talking to so many people and just finally really reading all the news stories about it, I just realized, like, I can't not respond in some way to this. Not that we need to respond every single week to whatever goes on in our culture, but there are, are some things that are just so obviously evil and just so weighty that they, they demand a response. Uh, and, and I know many of you are, have been thinking about this this week, and uh, we'll be continuing to think about it. Um, and so in thinking about those things, it was, it was Thursday afternoon that kind of hit me like, maybe I should change my sermon. So it was kind of hard. I had to scrap everything I had prepared, all that hard work, and just totally change directions. Um, but here we are. <laughs> so the, our confidence isn't in, in me and my ability to prepare, but our confidence is in God's Word. And so just like we prayed, we uh, his Spirit will speak through His Word to us this morning. Now, that's where our confidence lies. Um, and, and so just really quick, in talking about this, uh, we've been through this before in our country, haven't we? It seems like it's all the time, now, once or twice a year, it seems like there's another another shooting in it. And every time, they're just as puzzling and just as, as senseless as they were before. Uh, but in reading about this one, this one just seems to be the most puzzling and the most senseless, and quite honestly, maybe even the most terrifying. Um, so I don't, I don't expect to, to answer every question that you might have or to address every single aspect that needs to be addressed. Uh, so you may walk out if you're wishing I would have said something else or addressed something else. Um, that is just not, it can't be done in, in one single sermon. Oh, but what I want to do is I want to turn to, talk to Psalm 10. And I think once we read it, you'll see that it's a rather appropriate expression for what happened and how we're feeling in our, our country right now. Uh, in fact, I think you might even notice that there are some uncanny similarities to what happened and to what Psalm 10 says. Those similarities are completely incidental, uh, but... It is uncanny. Um, 
So I want to look at this psalm. I just want to go through it, and I want to make seven observations that the psalmist makes here in this passage. And seven observations that I think are very applicable to us here today in looking at what happened in our country. So I'll go ahead and read the entire psalm. If you're reading from a different translation, that's okay. It might sound different. The meaning is the same. Uh, But follow along if you can. Starting in Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks and sees the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you know mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Again, there's so much that could be said about that whole psalm, uh, but seven observations I want to make from it. So starting out, looking at verse 1. The first observation looking right there is that it's okay to ask God why. If you look at verse 1, the psalmist, he asks why twice. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Right, the psalmist is facing some kind of evil and wickedness, and he's legitimately struggling with this. Lord, why? Where are you? Why do you let this happen? Why? Where are you? So often we feel like it's wrong to wrestle with God and like it's wrong to ask why. Sometimes we feel like we have to have it all together, knowing all the answers, being able to just provide those short, perfect answers all the time when they're not always there. It's striking in verse 1 here, and really all throughout the Bible, how honest the writers of Scripture are about their feelings and about their struggles with their faith. 
This is a prime example, but if you were to just read the Psalms, there's Psalm after Psalm of somebody just crying out in affliction and pain, struggling with some kind of evil or wickedness or suffering. There's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations, a whole book filled with lament. Jesus himself cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So so nowhere does the Bible encourage us to just suppress our emotions and act like we're okay. But what the Bible does do is it encourages us to bring over and over again our struggles, our pains before God. Our fears before him that he might comfort us and shape us into the image of his son through those. Now so it's okay to ask God why the psalmist does here. And even though he may ask God why, he does not, however, give up hope in the Lord. Though he may have have doubts, questions, he still has full hope and trust and confidence in who the Lord is. Look all the way at the end at verse 17. He says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. So while expressing this question of why, oh Lord, is this happening? Why? He he still is coming from a place of confidence and trust in who the Lord is, saying you will hear the cries of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart and incline your ear. You do hear. You will answer. And so he's crying out to God yet doing so from a place of confidence and faithful hope and trust in who the Lord is. And so must we, whether it's some kind of evil in our country like what just happened or some kind of pain and suffering in our life that we can't deal with. We can go to ask, why? Where are you? Why is this happening? Yet all the while saying to him, Lord, you will hear my cries and you will strengthen my heart and incline your ear to me. All right, that's observation one. It's okay to ask why. Observation number two from this psalm. Evil is real, and we all know it. The psalmist in here knows evil when he sees it. He knows what evil is. Look how he describes this wicked person. And notice how he just stacks up all these different adjectives to describe the the psalmist, all these different things he does. He says he's wicked, he's proud, his mouth is full of iniquity and cursing and deceit, as if there is no God. He he prays on the innocent and the helpless. And so in the psalmist's mind writing this, Evil is not some imaginary, subjective idea that's determined by personal preference. In the psalmist's mind, evil is is a real, objective, factual reality, a a real power in this world. And it's common now in our culture for people to say that there are no moral absolutes. That there is no such thing as absolute right and absolute wrong. What's right for you may not be right for me, and what's wrong for you may not be wrong for me. Our our postmodern society is one where we, for ourselves, get to determine what's right and what's wrong. 
But there is such a thing as absolute good and absolute right, and there is such a thing as absolute wrong and evil. And sometimes it takes a glaringly obvious example, such as what happens to remind us of that. Right, in this, we're reminded that God is the ultimate standard of good and right. That he alone gets to determine that which is right and that which is wrong. And that which is wrong, evil is anything that stands opposed to him. And deep down in our hearts, we all know this. We know wickedness and evil when we see it. We know that evil is not just something that can be explained by scientific or evolutionary hypotheses. It can't be explained by mere personal preference, but there is such a thing as actual, real, objective evil. And there is such a thing as actual, real, objective good. And God is the determiner of that. And he has written that on our hearts so that we all know deep down what is right, what agrees with God and his absolute standard of righteousness, and what opposes him. Now, deep down, we all know that there is a God and that he has revealed himself in creation. And we all know when something violates his goodness. That's why when we hear news of something evil, or when we see evil in front of us, whatever it might be, that's why we, re- we react so violently to it. That's why deep down there's something in us that just reacts against it because we know, because God has implanted that in us. Right? And so we see this, and this can't be explained as anything but real, objective evil. Just like the psalmist says in Psalm 10, evil is real and we all know it. That's observation number two. Observation number three. Evil is senseless and irrational by its very nature. The wicked actions described by the psalmist here are totally irrational and senseless. When you look at what he's Describe. And if you just read through there and just look at what he described, the different kinds of actions, boasting of the desires of the soul, renouncing the Lord, living as if God will not see what he does and will not punish what he does, living with no reference to God whatsoever, preying on the innocent and the helpless. These are irrational and senseless things that that the the wicked in this psalm is doing. Perhaps you've noticed the senselessness of evil and of sin for for yourself. Perhaps you've been sitting there ready to knowingly and willingly commit some sin. And right as you're about to do it, the thought enters your mind that... What I'm about to do makes absolutely no sense. This is totally irrational and senseless. Why am I about to do this? And then you go ahead and do it anyways. 
Because sin and evil are irrational by their very nature. Right? It's, it's irrational and senseless to lie to your parents. It's irrational and senseless to cheat on a test or to cheat on taxes. It's irrational and senseless, senseless to look at pornography. It's irrational and senseless to bully or abuse someone. It's irrational and senseless to get drunk. It's irrational and senseless to be proud and arrogant. It's irrational and senseless to murder. And it's irrational and senseless, senseless to worship something other than God. And back in the garden, with the very first humans, it was irrational and senseless to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the first place. Right? And, and so since then, all sin, all evil, is irrational and senseless by its very nature. Right? Evil, by definition, is anything that stands opposed to God. And opposing God is the most irrational and senseless thing that could ever be conceived of. Right? And so all evil, all sin, as significant or insignificant as it might be in our eyes, is opposed to God and is irrational and senseless. It, it cannot be explained rationally. It makes no sense. Point number four. Evil is in all of us. Evil is in all of us. The psalmist does, may not necessarily say it in Psalm 10 here, but the, the testimony of Scripture from beginning to end reveals to us the evil that is in all of us. Now, of course, none of us in here have ever murdered anybody. Many of us have never probably committed the kind of horrific, heinous actions that we typically consider to be evil. But if we're being honest, the seeds of those kinds of evil are inside each one of us. When you, when you look at verse all, really, all of Psalm 10, you look at all the actions that he describes. Maybe we haven't carried out those, those things to the same extent that he's describing in Psalm 10. But we've all done this at some level. Right, look at verse 3. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul. Have we not all boasted of our sinful desires of our soul? Have we not all found deceit in our hearts of some sort? Haven't we all refused to acknowledge the Lord for who he is, just as the psalmist says this person does here? Maybe you've believed in God your whole life, so you've always at least given like intellectual assent to who God is and to the reality that there is a God who exists. But haven't we all at one time or another lived as if God does not exist? Haven't we all refused to acknowledge him for who he is? Haven't we all been the fool in Psalm 14, 1, who says in his heart there is no God? Right? Have not our mouths been filled with cursing and deceit, and oppression. 
Haven't we all taken the Lord's name in vain? Haven't we all just thrown the name of God out there as if it's another word? Haven't we had lies and deceit and and corrupting talk come out of our mouths? Haven't we all said in the secrecy of our hearts, as we've sinned, that God will never see us? Haven't we all looked around to make sure no one is watching to go on and sin in secret, ignorantly thinking that God can't see us and he, he will never, he won't stop us or have anything to do with what we're about to do. Evil is in all of us and the Bible is clear on this from beginning to end. In Psalm 51, 5, David writes, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He was conceived, he was born in sin. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Anyone who is angry with his brother has committed murder in his heart, and anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. Romans 3, 10 to 12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And Romans 5, 12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And so the reality that Scripture gives us is that we are not born into this world morally good. In fact, we're not even born into this world morally neutral. But we are born into this world morally bad, with a sinful nature. Having been born in sin, we are born with a nature that is predisposed towards hating God and rebelling against Him. Born with a heart that is desperately sick and predisposed towards all kinds of evil. And so when something evil happens, we must be careful to not just talk about evil as something that comes from out there, something that comes from outside of us, but we must look at ourselves and recognize that evil is something that comes from within each and every one of our hearts. When terrible things like this happen, we often accuse the, the perpetrators of being evil. And we often ask, how could someone be so wicked and so evil to do such a thing? And rightly so, as we should, ask that question. And as we should be disgusted by evil that we see happening in the world. But so often we forget that the very same evil that was in that person's heart is also in our hearts. That deep down in our hearts, we have the very same seeds of evil in us. And were it not for the grace of God, those seeds would grow and to come to fruition in our lives. Right. Anger, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, is like, like seeds of, of murder. So that maybe we've never murdered anybody, but in our hearts we have those seeds of, of hatred in us. Those seeds of adultery in us that we may never have committed the actual sin itself. 
So we we become proud and thinking how we would never do anything like that. Thinking about how morally superior we are to all these people. We scoff at others while not even batting an eye at the evil and sin that is in our hearts. And if you read the Gospels, this is what the Pharisees did that Jesus opposed so much. Right, the Pharisees applauded themselves for being better than those people, for not being as evil as them, yet failed to recognize the sin that was in their own hearts. And so when something so obviously evil happens, we must absolutely condemn it and call it what it is, evil. But we must also let that lead us to search our own hearts for the sin and evil that remains in ourselves. Number five, we must learn to hate wickedness. Look at verses 12 to 15 in Psalm 10 here. The psalmist describes all of these, these evil, wicked actions that this person is doing. He, he describes all of these, these irrational, senseless, evil things. And then finally, in verses 12 through 15, he says, Arise, O Lord God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. In verse 15, look at that especially. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The psalmist sees this wickedness happening. He he sees it, hates it, and then calls the Lord. Lord, respond. Rise up. Break the arm of the evildoer. Call him to account. Hold him accountable for his actions. Now make no mistake, he hates wickedness, and he's begging God to put an end to it. And so must we. When we see evil in the world, we must cry the same thing to God. Lord, put an end to it. Make it stop. Destroy the evil that is in this world. Do away with all of it. Destroy the wickedness of sex trafficking in our world. Put an end to the evils of abortion. Stop all the corruption in the sports world. Do away with racism. Enough of this senseless violence. Lord, put an end to it. Rise up. Break the arm of the evildoer. We must learn to hate the wickedness that is in this world. And we must strive against it. Working as God's people to push back the darkness with the hope of the gospel. But as we've already said, not only is there real evil in this world, but there's also real evil in all of us. And we must learn to not only hate the wickedness that's in the world, but we must also learn to hate the wickedness that is in us. And so just like the psalmist begs the Lord, rise up, O Lord, right? Do away with all this wickedness. So must we ask the Lord, do away with all the wickedness in me. We must pray along with King David in Psalm 19, verses 13 and 14. He says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. And I love what he says here. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
We must, as Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We must be willing to do what Jesus says to do in Matthew 5.30, again, in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. And we must not be okay with our own sin and wickedness. We must learn to hate it. To hate the sin that dwells within us. And then we must marvel at the fact that God has paid the price for that in Christ. That he has taken away our wickedness. And we must pray that God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, would now help us to see our sin, to hate it, and to put it to death. All right, sixth observation from Psalm 10. Judgment is coming. Look at Psalm 10, verses 16 through 18. He's at the end here of this. And really look at what he says in verse 18. So he says, verse 17, you will strengthen their heart and you will incline your ear to do what? In verse 18, he says, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The Lord will bring perfect justice to the earth so that evil men may strike terror in the world no more. He will do away with all sin, all evil and wickedness. And so one day, perfect justice will come. One day, the Lord will put an end to the reign of terror that, that evil and wickedness have in this world. Psalm 1, 5, and 6 says, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Acts seventeen thirty one. Uh, the Apostle Paul preaching says, The Lord has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And one day the Lord, through Christ, will judge every ounce of evil in the world. Nothing will escape the perfect justice of God. There will be no one getting away with anything when it's all said and done. Every single thought, every single word, every, every action, every inclination of the heart will be judged by the Lord. And on that day, this is good news for us, because on that day, all wickedness will be done away with forever. God will not allow evil and sin and wickedness to run amok in the universe forever. But being a perfect and just judge, he will bring justice in the end. And now when you consider the reality that there's evil in us, as the scripture has shown, this really becomes a terrifying thought, doesn't it? That 
God is coming one day to judge all evil. And yet we find evil and sin in all of us. This brings us to the final observation. Our only hope now and in the future is the gospel. Our only hope in this world now and forever is the good news of Jesus Christ. This good news comes to us in the midst of all of this bad news. And it brings us hope and assurance in the midst of this darkness and death and decay. And how does the gospel give us this assurance? Three ways. First, the gospel assures us that we have been saved from the penalty of sin and evil. As, As we just said, Not one ounce of evil will escape the perfect justice of God. And that includes the wickedness that is in us. The evil and wickedness that is in us will be judged. But if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation... The good news of the gospel is that your sin, the evil and wickedness that is in you to this day, the evil and sin, past, present, and future, has been judged in full at the cross. And because all of the judgment that we were due for our sin and evil that has been poured out onto Christ on the cross, that there is no judgment left for us. We have passed safely through God's judgment. That's what it is to be a follower of Christ. That's what Peter says in his First Peter chapter 3, that baptism is a picture of us passing safely through the waters of God's judgment. It's not that God has merely chosen to look past your sin and look past my sin. He didn't just turn a blind eye to it or just sweep it under the rug. But he actually objectively judged our sin at the cross of Christ. Jesus became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He drank the full cup of God's wrath on the cross, and there is not a drop left for us to drink if we have trusted in Christ for our salvation. All sin will be judged. Either you will bear the judgment for yourself, or if you have turned to Christ in faith, you will allow him to bear the judgment for you. But make no mistake about it, sin will be judged. And the assurance that we have as believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we have passed safely through God's judgment. There is no condemnation for us. He has pronounced a verdict of not guilty over our lives. A verdict that will stand now and forever. So that even when the devil comes to accuse us and comes to cast judgment upon us, the blood of Christ speaks over us. He, she is not guilty because I have been judged in their place. So in the gospel, we have assurance that we have been saved from the penalty of sin forever. But secondly... The gospel assures us that we are being saved from the power of sin in our daily lives. 
So not only has God saved us from the penalty of sin, not only has he, he pronounced this verdict of not guilty over our lives, but now he has actually begun a process in us where he puts his Holy Spirit in us and then actually begins to root out the evil and the sin that is still in our hearts. We have this assurance that God is working all things together for our good to conform us to the image of Christ, to make us like Jesus. We have this assurance that he who began this good work in us will bring it to completion one day. And so as we learn to hate the wickedness and the sin that remains in us, we do so and fight that not as hopeless people, not out of our own strength, but putting our hope in Christ that through his spirit, he is working to remove the sin and wickedness in us. And as he shows us our sinfulness, as we learn to hate it, and as we repent of it, he will cleanse us from it and help us to walk in actual newness of life. The gospel assures us that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. It assures us that we are being saved currently from the power of sin. And lastly, the gospel assures us that one day we will be saved from the presence of sin forever. He has saved us from the penalty of sin. He is saving us from the power of sin. And one day he will save us from the presence of sin. At one day when Christ comes. We will be raised to new resurrection life with him forever. Raised in imperishable resurrection bodies, freed from our own sinful nature, and freed from all the the sin and wickedness and evil that is in the world, freed from the power of the devil. And on that day when Christ comes, he will destroy sin and wickedness forever. And we will rejoice in it. He will cast Satan and all evildoers into the lake of fire. He will bring down the new heavens and the new earth where we will, he will dwell with us and we will dwell with him and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We will live with him forever. Perfect justice will be done and we will live in the presence of the Lord, freed from the very presence of sin and evil forever. We will one day be freed from the very presence of sin in this world. All the wickedness around us that's going on, every evil, senseless thing that happens, we will be freed from it forever. And we have this assurance in the gospel. So as we close, worship team, would you come forward? As, as we look at the, the, the rampant evil in our world. Right, we, we can look at Psalm 10 in all of God's word and, and be reminded. Right, be reminded that it's okay to ask God why. It's okay to cry out to him in affliction. We're reminded that evil is real. It's, it's a real thing in this world. We're reminded that all evil is irrational and senseless in its very nature. We're reminded that evil is in all of us. 
we're reminded that we must learn to hate evil and wickedness, everything in this world and also the evil and wickedness that is in our hearts. Right, we're reminded that judgment is coming, that, that one day, everything that went wrong in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve will be set right at the coming of Christ. All evil wickedness will be done away with. And lastly, as we look at events like this in our world, we are reminded that our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone and in the good news of what he has done for us and of what he continues to do for us. So we put all of our hope in Christ. We face the reality of sin and evil in this world and in us. And by God's grace, we put our faith in Christ alone, trusting that he has saved us from the penalty of sin, trusting that through Christ we have passed safely through God's judgment, trusting that through his grace and through the power of his spirit, he is saving us from the power of sin in our daily lives, and trusting that one day he will come set everything right and save us from the presence of sin forever. And when it's all said and done, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And we will sing the glory of his grace forever. Right, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 4, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. says in Ephesians 1 that his spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. So our hope is in Christ, in what he has done for us now and forever and for all eternity. It will redound to the praise of his glory. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, in this time of trouble in our country and even uh, the different times of trouble that we are enduring in our lives, we cry out to you, why, oh Lord? Lord, why? Where are you? Lord, we know that evil is real. We know that it is in all of us. So Father, we pray that you would help us to hate all evil and all wickedness. Help us to see the evil in this world and help us to oppose it, to hate it, to despise it, to call for justice to be done. And Father, we pray that you would help us to see the evil and the wickedness that still resides in us. We pray that your spirit would show us the sin that dwells within us. We pray that you would bring us to humble repentance. Help us to hate that sin, and may we, by your power, put it to death. Father, help us to remember that judgment is coming, that one day you will set everything straight. And help us to put our hope in Christ alone. I pray that even during this dark time, you would fill us with the hope of the gospel. That we would proclaim and live with great assurance 
and hope and joy that you, by your grace, have freed us from the penalty of sin. You are freeing us from the presence of sin. And one day, you will free us from the presence of sin forever. So Lord, we put our hope and our trust in you. And even in these times of trouble, we know that you are there that you will incline your ear to us. You will hear the troubles of the afflicted. And Lord, we long for the day when you will make all things new. And we wait for this with great joy and hope in Christ alone. It's in his name we pray.